Hi, I'm Mary Ann Baton, Director of Strategy and Collaboration with Workplace Strategies for Mental Health. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm here with Dr. Bruce Empringham, Vice President and Medical Director for Canada Life. We're going to talk about the link between addiction and mental illness and how different addiction treatment models can help and the people who are often overlooked in terms of dealing with addiction or mental health issues. I'm here today with Dr. Bruce Empringham, and we're going to talk about mental illness and addiction. Welcome, Dr. Bruce. Um, I want to start with a question about the likelihood that someone with an addiction also has a mental illness. Well, thanks, Marianne. I just um, look at this from the view of a, of a family doc, because that's my background, and would say that the, I mean, the numbers talk about in the neighborhood of 30 to 40 percent, uh, you know, of people with an addiction will have a mental health is- issue. And uh, but I think it's a really it's it's a much more complex question than that, because I, it depends how you define a, a mental illness. And it depends. I mean, are any of us totally normal, you know, and uh when somebody has an addiction, they're for sure going to have some anxiety issues related to that. And when do you label it? How do you treat it? And all, all of those things, it becomes a very complex issue. But what the question points to is they're they're clearly very intertwined. And so if someone that you care about is struggling, what type of treatment do you advocate for first? Is it to deal with the addiction? Is it to deal with the mental illness? Is there a way to look at them together? I mean, I think there's a, uh, clearly there are people with dual diagnosis that that have both conditions. And uh, in many cases, you need to deal with both issues. But when somebody's in the throes of an active addiction, you can't really treat the mental health issue successfully until they control the addiction. so it's a each person's individual, but uh, in somebody who's uh, struggling with uh, an alcoholism, for example, and is drinking a whole bunch every day, you're never going to get rid of the mental health issue without first getting rid of the addiction. Okay, so that's that's the starting point. But it it, it if you're now drinking another dozen beers today, it's it's you you can't get past the addiction part. Uh, when somebody's sober, too, though, for a few, even up to a couple of years, there's, uh, it takes a while for the executive function to get back to normal. And so you may start treating um, a mental health issue. Uh, so if somebody's depressed during recovery, you treat the mental health issue, but you wouldn't count it as a, a spe- you wouldn't have a, a separate label for a mental health issue. So somebody who's in recovery can be depressed but they may not have an, an actual depression. It may, may be related to sort of the mind stabilizing coming off the, coming off the substance. Right. So as you say, it's complicated. And, you know, in the news today, we hear a lot about op- opioid addiction. And uh, a lot of the individuals who have this started off with a prescription, maybe from their family doc, for painkillers. And... Um, what happens to people with these types of substances, um, especially when they still have pain to deal with? It's it's a real, it, you're making it more complicated because it is. 
I, this it's a fascinating issue, and, and a and a huge portion of people who are addicted to narcotics started because of a prescription. And when you talk to the, uh, I think one of the biggest misconceptions, specifically about narcotic addiction, is the people who might be addicts. I think we've come far enough in society to realize that that alcoholics could be, you know, your dad, your uncle, your boss, your employee. That this happens. But I think people, and I even think that people think of cocaine as something that successful people do. I mean, we we hear it in the end, but I, but I think when people hear about narcotic addicts, people think about, they don't realize that, you know, there's people at our workplace that go to the methadone clinics that are addicted. I, I think it's, a, it's another group that's split amongst uh, all different demographics. And, and, and I think it, it's, it's sadly one of the places where a fair bit of judgment still exists. I mean, it exists across the addictions, but I think specifically in some of the narcotic addictions. And I, I actually don't think it matters how you got started myself. Um, sometimes we, we fall into that uh, sometimes, and doctors do and I do. You know, they, 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 they started from their doctor, so it's a different thing. Well, not, not really. I mean, you're where you are and you need to get better, and we need to do what we can for you. And so if it's my family member who is dealing with pain and says, I can't go off these painkillers. What's the starting point for them? One of the problems is is that the narcotics are not really great at treating pain once someone's been on them for a long time. And people get a psychological and a physical dependence because truly, if you have serious pain, you're, you're afraid to stop because you're afraid it's going to hurt even more. Yet the drugs ultimately become, in essence, uh, treating the withdrawal from the last dose wearing off as opposed to treating the pain. And it's, 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 it's why some people need uh, medication substitutes like Suboxone or, or others to, to treat uh, the withdrawal. Not everybody needs that. Lots of people become sober from even narcotics without medication. Uh, medication is a reasonable alternative for some people. It, it's it's about getting people off to get the baseline of the pain first, and it's why there are specialists who do this stuff. It's why there are treatment centers. It's why there, the docs are involved because one never knows how much is pain and how much is addiction behavior in the middle of the mess. So when your family member says, I can't come off because I hurt so badly, it's never clear till you're off how much has hurt so badly and how much is is uh, substance dependence. Right, right. Um, when we talk about addiction, one of the um, areas that a lot of people are either skeptical about or not aware about is process addictions. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? It's one that... Um, at least, at least me, who has uh, sort of talked to people in the field a lot, also, you know, you struggle to get your head totally around it because there's not a, there's not a specific, um, uh, you know, sort of substance withdrawal need. But it seems to, it seems to, um, uh, people get the reward system of their brain working the right way, and once that behavior starts, it's hard to get out of that cycle, and. I, what I like about treating these things like addictions is it allows for proper treatment. And there will be people that argue that, that, that you know, um, say a shopping addiction is just a behavior and what do you mean addiction? And the, But rather than that argument, and people will say, well, there's no substance, how can it be an addiction? And 
I, I, I love the label because I love the fact that we can then help people get better. And if you treat it as something, uh, as an addiction, then I think we are much more successful about helping to get people off. And if I, if I could link it to another way for you, I mean, one of the things that, that, that I've uh, said and talked to my kids about is that one of the things we don't do well is we don't treat, for example, smoking enough like an addiction. When people want to quit drinking or when people want to quit uh, another substance, we um, we have treatment centers, we have plans, and we maybe talk about that a little later, but there's lots of stuff we could do. When people want to quit smoking, you know, we can prescribe them a nicotine replacement or stop. We don't deal with the behaviors. People, people will quit smoking and still go out for a cigar, which, of course, you know, is like celebrating an AA birthday by going out for a beer. It just doesn't make any sense. Right. Yet everybody... Not everybody, but people do that. And I think the nice thing about the 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 model for addiction treatment is that if we is that it really does work well. And clearly the 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 science indicates that the process addictions fit in the addiction field and the treatments work. Can you name some other process addictions? You talked about shopping, but well, there's, there's 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 shopping, there's there's porn addiction, there's gaming addictions. I think you know, I, and I think, Again, this is a spectrum that isn't every parent thinks their teenage kid has a has a gaming addiction. You know, this is a spectrum beyond where and 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 the the, the diagnosis would be just that it's really affecting your life in a way that's in a negative way. That's that's really what the what the what the difference is. Which is really a, a good way to look at addiction in general. If you have a couple glasses of wine a uh, few times a month, uh, that's one thing. But if you can't go a day or if every time you drink, you're drinking to excess, it's going to have negative impacts on your life, on your relationships, on your health. And um, regardless if the diagnosis is there or not, you need to change that. That's a great way to look at uh that's a great way to look at addictions. I, I think that uh, one can get very sciencey and complicated by uh, looking at a list of criteria that must be met to call an addiction. But I think for a practical purposes, on a sort of a day-to-day basis in addressing whether you or someone you know might have a problem with something, the easiest way to look at it is that if you continue doing something in the face of adverse consequences, and they could be physical. You know, if your doctor tells you to stop because you're wrecking your liver and you still drink, that's means you probably have a problem or it could be psychological your wife left or it could be relationship your wife left you because you drink and you you know and you don't change your behavior there are many different negative aspects but if you continue to do something in the face of negative consequences you probably have an issue right and when we look at it now in workplaces the um, human rights says that addiction is a disability and so that has shifted what a lot of employers do uh, when an employee has an addiction. It used to be that they would probably let them go. And now, can you talk a bit about what employers do or should do if they suspect one of their employees has an addiction? It's something I think uh, I've seen happen in our workplace on uh, multiple times over the years. and. It could be someone who is showing up to work impaired. It could be someone who is not able to work the next morning or you know, not, not capable in the mornings because of what's going on in the evenings. It could be someone who a Mickey falls out of their bag 
you know, in the morning and breaks open and raises the questions. There's lots of different ways it can present. It could present because life is falling apart and they're looking for help and actually approach the company. And I think that's a really cool thing when people actually think they can go to their company when it's impacting them to look for help. And and we see that a fair bit at our place. And I, that really sort of makes you happy to be part of that. Um, when you run that kind of, when our, when we run that kind of business that people can approach. So I think, you know, you know, in the old days, you're right. I, I, I don't know what, what would have happened. Maybe you lost your job for, for uh, showing up impaired. But today, what would typically happen is, uh, at least at our place, uh, maybe HR would be called first. And in fact, I might be called first or staff health might be called first. We'd get involved and everybody would recognize that uh, probably somebody showing up for work drinking indicates there's something bigger going on. Somebody maybe has an addiction and needs some help. We There's a number of tools and levers to do. I mean, treatment is a cool and complex and fun thing to arrange for people. Um I mean, working in addictions and helping people with addictions is so rewarding and so awesome because cause, cause when people do so well, they become the best employee you ever had, the best husband you ever had, the best people who stay sober are just awesome to work with because if you think at the lowest time in your life when you don't think anything's going to get better, that sort of bottom that people talk about, just when everything is just a mess and an employer sticks with you and and helps you even to get better the the amount of sort of uh, loyalty that that uh, often engenders not not suggesting that the employee owes the company anything afterwards but people value that and i think you've helped them and they will turn in and then they become sort of uh champions in the workplace of looking after people who might have other mental health disorders. And and again, the mental health disorders and the substance use disorders are so tightly linked that I I think they become great champions in your workplace. I mean, there's so many things we can do for them. We have sometimes people who come and talk to the nurse every week or two just to to have a touch base. Uh, We have people who come and talk to me every few weeks. And over my time here, it's been rare where we've gone through a month or two where I didn't have somebody who was you know, it's sort of in the in the loop. Um, there, probably the biggest mainstay would still be AA meetings that we hook people up with. And if you're in a place like London, you're lucky. You can probably choose from five or ten a day. Even if you're in a small town, most towns would have one a day uh, in somewhere. Um, on to uh, treatment centers, which are available. Treatment physicians. There's. Uh, uh, addiction centers run by the government in most most places. Uh, treatment centers are simply a, a great kickstart. They put you in a protected place to stop using for a few weeks and get you get your feet under you for people who are really struggling. There's all kinds of problems that that are societal problems around struggling with that. That we're right now in in London looking at how where do we house people after treatment? What happens if you came, for example, from a uh, a, a terrible family situation where all of your family is drinking like crazy and you realize you've had enough and nobody else wants to stop and we put you back in that house. It's not a recipe for success. So how do we manage that when people go out discharge planning, intake? Uh, it's it's just a great field to work in and it's great at a workplace to be able to help people mesh into that. I'd say the one place that's overlooked um, and probably wouldn't come up with a question, so I'll raise it. The one place that's overlooked is I think we often forget that we should tell people who uh, 
I, I often get the question about somebody else. What about somebody else? What about my husband? What about my kid? What about my father? What about whatever? And my answer is always, the, forget about them. You should go to an Al-Anon meeting or you should Google Al-Anon and research that stuff. Because I think what family members often do for people uh, doesn't help. When people think they're helping, it's often counterintuitive the right thing to do. And so I strongly encourage family to members, family members and relatives and, and friends that if they want to be engaged in helping somebody change what they're doing, they need to attend meetings themselves. And what's fascinating to me over the years, I wouldn't have guessed before, but I've come to learn as normal. I have far more success getting the person using to get information, to go to meetings, to go to a treatment center than I've ever had getting family members to actually go to meetings and to research, to learn about stuff. And I'm, I'm not really sure why that is. I, I think it's, it's hard to accept that this becomes a family issue and you need to be part of that. But, but what people do is counterintuitive, is often uh, self-defeating and yeah, hurts, think, hurts them and the person. Right. And can you talk about some of those behaviors that really are self-defeating? Because uh, I've seen it many times and it's painful to watch because of the collateral damage. Right. And I think they, they, we talk about addiction, addiction being a family illness. And in fact, there's a couple treatment centers, including one near London in Ontario, that offer actually a, an inpatient week for family members which is way cool and does a ton of everybody you talk to that goes to that and learns about their own codependence. And addictions talked about as a family illness because it changes the behavior of the people around. Uh, did your husband cover for you by, by phoning in sick for you when your tongue hung over to go to work or validating that you actually had, you know, the flu? Um, or did, did you, when your child was a... a daily abusing some substance, uh, did you help with the rent because they didn't have money for rent at the end of the month? And how did you do that? And, and in your mind, I'm not, I'm, I'm not for a minute criticizing anybody who's been in these situations because it's hard to know what to do. What do you do when you're, they have children and their grandchildren might not have to place a place to live if you don't help pay the rent? Right. On, right. on the other hand, you're facilitating the addiction by giving money. And these are, again, it's why experts need to be involved in every case. There isn't a blanket answer. And, uh, you know, there but for the grace of God go all of us with our children or our families, and, and there are no easy answers. So those are enabling behaviors that you've described. But then there's family members who take an opposite view, which is if I shame them enough, that uh, they will decide that they're not going to use anymore. And that has um, negative uh, implications as well. Absolutely. The, the turning on the person is, uh, can be pretty tough. And, and on the other hand, and again, it's why it's a complex issue. It's why you can't say never do that because uh, a family member quite rightly could say, every time I've tried to trust them before, it came back to haunt me. And, and they took advantage of me, or I lost more money, or whatever, and I got hurt, and I can't do that anymore. And that's a totally legitimate approach for a family member. Um, but they still then have to learn, and this is, what, this is what meetings teach you, is to how to get back out of the way so they can still look after themselves and get better. And then the trust maybe in the future can be rebuilt. Right. We once did a um, focus group with individuals who had been dealing with addiction, and they said, 
please tell the people that you're talking to that we're going to lie to them. We're going to lie to them because we think they can't handle the truth. We're going to lie to them because we think they will reject us if we don't. We're going to lie to them because in that moment, we believe with all of our being that if we don't have our substance or our process addiction, that we will not survive. And I found that so enlightening because probably before that, I would have seen lying as a personal insult against me and then realized it has nothing to do with me and all about their insecurities and their need to protect themselves. Yeah, it, that's a, a fantastic comment. I, I haven't heard it phrased quite like that before, but it's beautiful. I, what The way I look at it, which is sort of the same thing in a different phrasing, is that when I talk about addiction to people and what recovery is, so many people think recovery is not using. And not using is such a such a barely start part of recovery. Um, and and what rec- my shortest phrase for recovery is recovery is not using and liking it. <laughs> right? That's my easiest way of saying. Like, what is, when people say, "What do you mean recovery? Like, what what is this thing?" And I just say it's not using and liking it, as opposed to, "Oh my gosh, how am I going to do without whatever it is?" Right. And so, the the phrase I've seen is addiction is a disease of lying and isolation and recovery must be about honesty and socialization and it's interesting that's that's the flip with the lying that you're talking about right and when you talk about alcoholics anonymous that's really what they're giving them is that social connection um, more than anything and yet yeah whether you're in a family full of alcoholics or you're just alone as the only drinker the isolation is significant Talking to people who thought that they were the cool guy in the family because their family didn't drink, but they were the ones going out and drinking and they were partying and they had their friends and lots of booze. And as they get sober, they realize that that might have been true at first. But the last few years, they were actually the ones isolated sitting in their hotel room with a, with a 26er. Right. Everybody else was out having a good time. It does tend to... It, it, it's, it's very Addiction is very interesting how it... And it changes the way your brain thinks about about things. You, it, it, it's very crafty, and and the addict, the addicted brain is is something that every addict is told to look out for. Be careful of those sort of crazy addict thoughts that are going to tell you that you can do something that you really know you can't. And that's what sponsors do. Hey, I have a great idea. Yeah. And you talk to a sponsor and the sponsor, you know, that's probably not such a great idea. Or that's what meetings are for, where people will talk to other people who are addicts or uh, or, or whatever their, their substance is. And it's because the pattern of behavior is often so much the same. I had, I had this thought. What do you think? No, it's a terrible idea. Yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah. I remember a while ago there was a television show documentary on the fact that if you were an alcoholic in recovery, you could have one or two drinks and you would be okay. And that there was this whole group of people who said, yes, it works. And they followed up on it afterwards. And a true um, addicted brain cannot um, do that. And so many people ruined years of sobriety by falling into the trap. And like you say, if you find people that agree with you, often your sponsor knows better 
than right. the average person who goes, sure, just one or two, you'll be fine. We always seek out people who agree with us, that sort of confirmation <laughs> bias that's crept into so much of what we do in the world today. This, with the internet allows us, because there's 50 gajillion bytes of information, you can always find somebody to confirm your bias. However, one, I mean, one of the things that's changed in the addiction world that I've been learning a lot about in this past year is about the, uh, instead of purely abstinence, to look at harm reduction. And clearly, if someone can get abstinent, it's the safest way to go and the best way to go. What we've realized the problem is, is if the patients don't have a voice in their treatment. As doctors, if the patients don't have a voice in their treatment, and this is not a workplace discussion um, necessarily, but uh, if people don't ask and they're just told stop or leave, you, you miss a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And if someone has been a, a cocaine or heroin addict and they manage to get off that, but they're still using marijuana several times a day, Clearly, we can look and go, maybe you'd function better off everything, but but that harm reduction may be a really good thing for them. Well, and may and keep that's them alive, right? right? Think, so I think there, we, we can't just look at abstinence as the only way because it can be too harsh on that we don't get enough people better. Mm-hmm. Great. Let's, let's go back to the workplace for a second. And um, I'm a co-worker. I see somebody and I think, wow, they're really struggling with addiction. What do you recommend I, as a non-professional, should or should not do? It really so much depends on who you are, what emotional triggers you have. Uh, Sometimes the people who pick up on this stuff are the last people who should actually say anything because maybe the reason you noticed is because you grew up in an alcoholic household and you've got so much emotion wrapped up in that you're going to do a terrible job of talking to them. So I think much of it depends on who you are. It depends on your relationship. It depends on the person. The discussions often don't go well. I mean, being told that a substance is, if you you don't have a problem, then it's a pretty easy discussion and it's it's okay. I mean, I I suppose everybody could have have an issue at some point in their lives and not have a real problem. But if people are usually sensitive about somewhere in the sort of your brain, there's something triggering away in the back that knows you don't drink normally. Can we'll stick to drinking for a second because that's often the workplace one. You know, you know something's there that you're maybe not like everybody else, but it's buried. Yes. And when somebody scratches that surface, like your teenage kid when they know they were wrong and you raise it, it usually isn't a great reaction. And the reaction is often not great. And so it depends on the relationship. Uh, but on the other hand, a fellow employee doesn't want to go to human resources about it. They're afraid to go to most people in the building. We've been really lucky in our areas that actually people often come to me about it. And and because I've been involved in a number of these sort of in the building and on the floor, um, we've been really lucky. But in general, it's 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 it really depends on the relationship. It's really good to try and raise the issue if you think you can with the person. Because as I said, there's something in there. And any little trigger that says that says something to the person might be the thing that just gets them thinking enough to talk to somebody. But confrontation is the wrong way. You have, For you know, sure. Confrontation is the wrong way. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine went to a workshop about alcohol use where they had them do an assessment on themselves and came out and said, wow, like, I, I think I have a drinking problem. And my reaction was, 
you think? Like, I thought you knew. And um, it was enough to trigger him to start to change behaviors. And so in the workplace, that's one of the things that I think is um, helpful is just to talk about what is normal drinking or substance use and the compassion that we have for people that are over that amount and need help that you don't have to confront somebody but just make that information something that's talked about just like we talk about mental health issues that the more we talk about depression and anxiety as being part of the human condition and how some people deal with it quite well manage it and other people have a more difficult time than the person who is suspecting that the way they feel isn't right feel more empowered to reach out it wants people i mean the beautiful thing is i'm interested how you felt when that happened whether you wished that you would have said something to the person if you knew about it had you wished that you would have said you know i don't think that i do wish that I had said something, I don't think it would have landed well, just as you suggested. I think that they, and this is something that uh, he said to me, is that all of his friends drank the same amount, and so that was his gauge, is that everybody around me drinks this much. So tend to circle yourself, and it's not intentional, but, uh, you know, we don't, uh, uh, my wife and I don't uh, my wife drinks a little bit. I don't drink at all. And, and most of our friends don't tend to drink. And it's not because we don't want to hang out with people who drink. It just because it tends to happen. And if if you think that uh, you and eight friends go out to the keg after work for a couple of pitchers of beer every day, then you think everybody does that. Right. That's the, who you're surrounded with. They, so I understand. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, another thing that comes up with addiction um, and mental illness is the fear of violence. And can you speak a bit about that fear that if I think, well, someone, uh, you know, has depression or someone is drinking or usually if they're on drugs, that uh, the risk of violence is great? I don't really have any experience in in that area. Uh, I would say that for, certainly for alcohol, which is the common one in the workplace, it's it would be pretty uncommon for someone to come into work and, uh, you know, impaired enough to, to cause some damage, but certainly is possible. I, I think we have to remember that folks have a medical illness when they're going through this. And this is like addiction is something that um, nobody chose to have. And while somebody in the midst of a, of a drug high might pose some risk, and therefore, we need to protect the workplace against people being here with those substances. We still have to have the compassion to recognize that we have to look after people when they're going through that stuff. Just just because it now sounds like we're having to look after people who are a threat to us, just, just understand for a second the difference between a, like, what, what's the difference between a, um, why, what, like addiction, the disease versus, a, versus drinking the behavior. I, I, most people really struggle with that. Um, like you chose to drink, so how is that an illness? Is a like a common question, and the way I phrase it to people is: well, first of all, I, the 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 disease model is just a great way to get people treated. Um, it it makes people get better more, uh, because if we if we 
treated as some sort of social weakness, just guilt and shame come into it, and guilt and shame are enough there anyway, and all it does is keep people sick, and it's really self-defeating. So just from a treatment point of view, it's a great model. But from a, I, I think everybody would accept that nobody picked up their drinks intending to be that guy or woman who lost their family and lost their kids and was at the, you know, they're in their house waiting to get evicted with a 26er of port and everything else is gone. Like nobody, nobody chose to be that person. Mm-hmm. That, that's the addiction. Nobody, nobody wants to be that. And sure, they chose the behaviors that got them there, but but why is it that one person picks up their first and second drink and then goes, man, I need more? And even as 16-year-olds, you know you had friends who, a couple of drinks, and it was like, man, that's enough. And other people, after a couple, it was like, we're just getting started. Right. And so we're, I mean, clearly, clearly there's genetic differences that cause some people to become addicts and alcoholics and others not. Why? Why did... One person get prescribed Tylenol three after wrist surgery or knee surgery and not get addicted, and another person did. It's clearly not a weakness. There's genetic differences in people that cause people to, and we don't know sort of inheritance patterns, but clearly there's genetic differences that cause some people to be addicts or not. And so I think if we accept that and move on, it just it it lets us understand why some people present like they do, and have some compassion to try and get them into a better place. And having that compassion is actually better for us in the long run anyway. Yeah, better for us, better for them. Well, better better uh, for yeah. them, better for you as a person, and better for society in general. Mm-hmm. So just as, as we go to wrap up, Dr. Bruce, what do you hope that the people listening will take away from this podcast? So I think the, the things that I present, I, I think are the most important, are to get rid of the judgment. I think it keeps people sick and it keeps society sick. And whether it's got to do with mental health or whether it's got to do with substance use, uh, if we could stop judging people and start helping people, we'd be in a way better place. Uh, We have to do that smartly when you're close to somebody, which goes back to my suggestion about Al-Anon or that type of information because, right, because we don't want to turn into that enabling codependent. We want to you know, do the right things. So I think number one is get rid of the judgment. Number two is as a company, we're in a really good place already with what we do. And I would love to just keep leveraging that to, to continue to get us in a better place to to uh, help people. And and I guess the last thing is for anybody who's struggling, don't don't be afraid to reach out. If it's if it's a mental health issue and you're people are struggling alone, I, people forget that all of their friends would much rather hear them talk to them and lose some sleep listening to what your problem is than they would lose some sleep worrying about what happened to you. So I just encourage everybody who's struggling with stuff to reach out. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you to our listeners for spending this time with us. As Dr. Bruce said, addiction must be about honesty and socialization. We need to have compassion and help people with addictions and mental illness, both in and out of the workplace. We hope you found it interesting and helpful. 
If you did, please share it and other helpful resources from Workplace Strategies for Mental Health on your social media channels, hashtag Workplace Strategies. Please also remember to visit our website for materials to support employee success in your workplace. All of our tools and resources are free to everyone.